again, this kind of mentality of be grateful you're alive. Be grateful that, you know, you 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 have it easy, kids. <laughs> That's kind of her parenting mentality as she takes on these this n- another round of child parenting later on in life. Welcome back, everybody. This is No Script, an unscripted conversation about theater's best scripts. I am Jackson Nikolai. I am Jacob Mann Christensen. Hey, welcome back, everybody. Thank you for tuning in another week to uh, another hopefully exciting conversation about some of theater's most well-known scripts. And we're returning to Pulitzer-level script with this one. That is right, and we are returning to one of theater's best-known playwrights. And and when I say returning, I mean we are returning to a group of best-known playwrights, not <laughs> returning to a playwright. Because it's brand new! Yeah, deep into season three, it's amazing we still have playwrights we haven't covered. Of course we do. There are right. hundreds, thousands of incredible playwrights <laughs> out there, and uh, we're just scratching the surface even so far into season three. So today we are talking about a script by Mr. Neil Simon. Yeah, Neil Simon, a you know, in my mind, a comic playwright, uh, a, a very well-known, very um, established comic playwright. But we are talking about one that kind of threads the line between drama and comedy, and that is his play Lost in Yonkers. Yeah, I'm really excited for this conversation. This script, believe it or not, was new to me coming into this episode. I knew nothing about Lost in Yonkers. I know much about a lot of Neil Simon's other scripts. Neil Simon, life, like Stephen Adley Geargis, I think is an excellent titler. Uh, but I didn't know anything about Lost in Yonkers, so it was cool to experience that for really the first time with really, really fresh eyes. Yeah, this is uh, not the first time I've read this play, but it had been a while, So, and I'm pretty sure I only read it for like uh, scenes for something or something like that, so I read it pretty fast in my recollection, and I agree, it's kind of a blindsidey play, we'll, we'll, we'll get into what it is, but yeah, it comes out of nowhere if you know Neil Simon's bodies of, body yeah, of work. Yeah, it hits you like a bus of psychological drama as you're walking <laughs> into the farce store, you know? <laughs> yep. But uh, yeah, we'll talk about that in a minute. For now, we do want to ask everybody who is listening please head on over to patreon.com slash no script podcast again patreon.com slash no script podcast that is where you can become a supporter of the show we love what we do this podcast is a labor of love it's exciting it's fun it's something that we are just so passionate about but it is not free it actively takes money out of our pockets to be able to put on this show and we need your help to be able to do what we're doing so please become a supporter of of the show. You can sign up for monthly donations there for as little as $1 a month. Whenever I get to do this, I like to say this. I know so many of our listeners and I know so many of you would just give me $12 if I asked you for it. And that's the annual cost to support the show. $12 is the lowest annual cost. That's a monthly fee of $1 a month. I hope you feel like you're getting $1 a month of return on your time spent with us. So please head on over to NoScript. I'm sorry, to patreon.com slash no script podcast to support the show. We hope to see you over there. Yes, indeed. So check out the show over there and we will see you there and on all of our social media sites, hopefully. But jumping into the conversation about Lost in Yonkers, as Jacob likes to say, back to the script. This 
play, I want to contextualize it just a little bit. This play won the Pulitzer Prize for Drama in 1991. I share a birthday with this play's winning of the Pulitzer Prize um, <laughs> in that year. Um, this play premiered at the Center for Performing Arts in Winston-Salem, North Carolina in 1990. It won the Pulitzer the following year. Uh, and then at the Richard Rogers Theater, it, it was its uh, Broadway debut, and that was in February of 1991. Uh, uh, a couple of uh, noteworthy names in here. There's Emmanuel Asenberg. Uh, Jamie Marsh is in this. Irene Worth played the grandma in this play, who we're going to get into in a little bit. And, of course, uh, Kevin Spacey played Uncle Louie. Uh, so, uh, and Danny Garrard played as Artie. So some of these, some of these faces you would recognize most notably, probably Kevin Spacey amongst those names. And, uh, that show ran, uh, for 780 performances and 11 previews. Also notably, it was made into a film. And, uh, in that film, probably the name that you would recognize the most from that would be Richard Dreyfus. Richard Dreyfus played Uncle Louie in that version. And, uh, there are a couple scenes, uh, that you can find in different places. And it's really fun to kind of see the dynamic he brings to Uncle Louie. It definitely changed my perspective of the play going from reading to actually watching someone do that role. So the script is about uh, family, as they often are in Neil Simon plays, often Neil Simon comedies, and we'll talk about maybe some of the differences there. But this script is about two young boys, Jay and Artie. Jay is around 16. Artie is around 14. I think they're both actually just a little bit shy of those ages, 13 and a half and 15 and a half, I believe. At the beginning of the play, they are being... Uh, kind of dropped off for a while. Eddie, their father, it has to go and work in the South selling scrap iron to the military because he owes some money to some loan sharks. And this is a job that he's able to get now because the war going on this is the 1940s. And due to the war, there's lots of jobs open doing things like this. And he needs this job because it pays so well to pay off his debt to a loan shark, which he incurred because Jay and Artie's mother, Eddie's wife, uh, recently died of cancer. And so her medical bills caused him to have to go into debt for a loan shark. There's a lot of setup to get to where the show starts. <laughs> the show starts with Eddie needing to leave the boys with his mother, just grandma in the script, so that he can go off to work this job, get the money, pay the loan sharks back. Grandma is a first-generation German immigrant. She immigrated here a long, long time ago with her husband and, and all of their children, uh, one of which was Eddie. And she is a, she's an authoritarian. She is a domineering lady. And the boys are not thrilled with the prospect of having to stay with her, and her relationship to all of her children uh, plays in as well. So the play follows basically the boys' misadventures living with Grandma in this middle-class house above their can their family candy store in Yonkers. Um, some other characters that we'll meet along the way, Bella, Louie, and Gert are the other siblings of Eddie, Grandma's children, and so they would be... Artie and Jay's aunt and uncles, uh, respectively, throughout the show. And, and they come in and have different parts to play, the ma most major one being Bella. And her, uh, she lives with Grandma in the apartment and with the boys. And what happens to her throughout the show maybe is one of the major plots that we follow as she has a relationship that she develops with somebody outside the apartment that we never meet. 
Yeah, it's kind of this this snapshot of a family, but different than, I, I feel like I've said that phrase before about other plays, this one feels different. This one feels uh, kind of almost more childlike. Like you imagine, this is it's kind of a coming of age story in a lot of ways. It's these two boys who get, as Jacob said, it's these two boys who get stuck with grandma and then wackiness ensues. So <laughs> it's it's got a different feel. It, 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 let's, talk, let's talk a little bit about that feeling, that line between drama and comedy that gets drawn in this play. How, how, how does Neil Simon negotiate that initially? Well, yeah, I think one word that you used as a good avenue into it, right? Because you said wackiness ensues. And I think I said misadventures or something, which is language that feels like it ascribes itself well to Neil Simon, right? Two very different men move into an apartment together. Wackiness ensues, <laughs> right? Uh, a young, recently married couple moves into a bad apartment six flights up in the downtown New York. Misadventures happen. <laughs> <laughs> That's Neil Simon, and he's brilliant at it, and his plays are hilarious, and they're just a, a defining moment, a defining language of American theater lexicon. This play, I'm not sure we would use those words if the playwright hadn't been Neil Simon. Yeah, because there's some there's some deep undercurrent underneath this as well. There are kind of very uh, deep-set family issues that come up mostly having to do with grandma. We're just going to call her grandma, I think. Uh, with grandma's parenting style and the ramifications of what happened as a result of it. It seems like a couple siblings made it out okay, but a couple didn't really... Uh, uh, mature or or su survive maybe is the right word um, out out of uh, out of their childhood. Right, and and it's interesting that you use the word survive because of course this is how Grandma describes her parenting style. At one point, I don't know, midway through the script, a third of the way through the script, something like that. Artie is sick. Artie is the younger of the two boys, and he's you know he's lying in bed with fever or, or such and such. And Grandma, in her typical authoritarian, get out of bed, do your homework, drink this soup, da 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 da. And he he's he's pushing back a little bit, finally getting some backbone to push back and ask questions about why she treats them this way, why she's so unkind. And basically her response is, you know, my, my only responsibility to you is that you survive. My goal is that you live through your time with me. You live and that's enough. And then later on, as she talks to her adult children, and they bring up complaints that they have with the way they were raised, she says almost the same thing. Look, you lived. You lived. That was my goal. And that is not a given. Not only because it's the 40s, right? And, and I would guess child mortality rates were higher in the 40s, medicine, things like that. But also in their immediate family, that's not a given. Two of the, of the siblings... We we don't meet these two because they they die they died as young people uh, one of them a lot younger one of them as a as a at least moderately developed child and so this these these four siblings Eddie Louie Bella and Gert they have an institutional memory of two of their siblings dying 
And so the fact that grandma, who's lost two of her children, says, you lived, that's not just, uh, you know, it is funny in some ways, right? This idea, well, they survived, right? We kind of do that in today's uh, humor about parenting. Well, if they survived, that's it. So it has that weight of humor, but it also has the weight of very serious uh, uh, family backstory, Absolutely. I, I'm so glad you hit on that because that is like the kind of tragic underlying of all this because we get all that, the uh, the survival language from grandma, and I think we receive it as the joke. The, you know, just survive. Just get up, drink your mustard soup, and your cold will go away, and you'll survive. It's fine. Get out of here. Um, but we slowly begin to unwrap that that actually means quite a bit for her and 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 yes it means a lot for the siblings because it carries that ramification of yes my si- siblings died at an early age but also we discovered that when those siblings died is kind of the beat and when her husband died um when grandma started getting really hard and a lot of play, uh, a lot of the characters call her cold and um uh, and and that's when she began to kind of switch to survival at all costs. I will make you survive was her primary goal. Of course, she also has uh, more backstory that that provides us some understanding about who she is and why she is the way that she is. Early in the script, I think it might even be straight up scene one, she reveals that as a child in Germany, her and her family were routinely beaten by the German police. I mean, it was a you know it was an authoritarian state at, at least to some degree. I'm not up on my German history, um, but we know there's a very specific memory that is revealed later on in the play about grandma and what would have been grandma's father at the time. And grandma's father took her as a child to a political rally in Germany. And the father was, I believe, killed. The way the story is described, I couldn't quite tell if he was actually killed in that moment or if he was just injured, whatever. What we do know is that something terrible happened to him at that moment and uh her foot was injured which is an injury that she carries with her to this day and and follows her in a very physical way around her presence in the house and we know this impacts her because like i said she brings it up in scene one yeah yeah absolutely she's got this 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 kind of long story that she tells about about that time and and I believe there is some also there there is some through line as well that this uh, during World War II again we're set in that time frame uh, I believe her family were Jews um, and and they left Germany uh, prior to the war but there is often brought up this uh, this theme of uh, you're lucky you're here, she keeps saying. To, or she says to Artie and Jay one or, once or twice, you're lucky you're here because you'd be dead if you were in Germany right now. So, it, it, again, this kind of mentality of be grateful you're alive. Be grateful that, you know, you you you, you have it easy, kids. <laughs> That's kind of her parenting mentality as she takes on these this n- another round of child parenting later on in life. Which is an interesting perspective from her, right? Because you're right. She uses this language of where we are is better than where I've been. And that's just, that's that's her outlook. And at the same time, she utterly refuses to let the boys say where we are is worse than where we've been. 
They tried to bring up, you know, all these things their mother used to do for them, how life could be different or better. You know, at that same scene where Artie's sick, he says, you know, when I had a fever, my mom would let me stay in bed. And grandma cracks down on that with authoritarian power. She says, you're not in your mother's house. <laughs> you know, yeah. and it's and mm-hmm. you're right that it's so interesting that she's the one who's willing to say, well, you're lucky you're not in Germany because you'd be dead. But she also doesn't want the boys to reference anything from their past. It's it's as if she is the only one who lets, you know, her history impact the conversation around the present moment. No one else's history or context or life can enter into grandma's home. In grandma's home, grandma's history is the is the history that matters. And grandma's perception as well. Uh, her perception of her family and her, her family around her is that she's been kind of abandoned by them, specifically by Eddie. And uh, I don't believe uh, Jay and Artie's mom is ever named, but Jay and Artie's mom Um uh, she she feels abandoned by them, and she blames their mother for that fact. So so uh, in in addition to uh, uh, this this uh, <laughs> stop complaining attitude, she's also kind of taken out on them some of her uh, retroactive anger against their now deceased mother. Right, yeah. So in that scene one, as Eddie is trying to convince Grandma to let the boys stay with her while he goes to work to pay off this debt to a loan shark, Grandma says, well, why do I owe you anything? Since you got married, I've never seen you. That woman you married turned you against me. I never saw my grandchildren. They're strangers to me. That woman meant nothing to me. And Artie picks up on that, and then later on he kind of uses that as ammo against her, saying, well, you know, you're only mean to me because you don't like my mom mm-hmm. yeah that that opening scene is just like nightmare introduction scene like we've all kind of I, I believe many of us could have you know family stories of like meeting a family relative that's 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 older and it's been a while most like I have stories of like my great aunts and uncle that you like you go up to meet him and it's this like tense moment this moment tops all of my stories of that <laughs> It's like this this interview with Grandma as she grills Artie and Jay, who, by the way, we haven't talked too much about them, but we did mention that they don't want to stay with Grandma. They really want to stay with their dad. And, and their dad kind of surprises them with this news in scene one that he's going to be leaving them here. So they go into this interview surprised, not wanting to be here, and needing to impress grandma so that they don't let their dad down. Especially Jay has a lot of that uh, sense of, I don't want to let dad down. So despite the fact that they're afraid of grandma, (laughs) they kind of knuckle down and this kind of tense interview ensues. Yeah, I think it's definitely right that Jay carries the older brother role and takes it very seriously. Uh, you know, some some older brothers or, or some imaginings of characters who are older brothers are, are older brothers who shirk that responsibility. That doesn't seem to be true of Jay. He, he seems to want to take over and, and care for Artie and handle situations himself and prove that he's, you know, he's becoming a man. He kind of has that attitude. And he does that, right, in that first scene, even before they know that they're 
they're there to interview to stay with grandma, uh, the dad has told them, hey, I don't don't have any ice cream when Bella gets here because we don't want to make grandma mad. And Bella is well known for trying to pawn ice cream off on the boys. So when Bella shows up, sure enough, she says, I'm going to make you some ice cream stuff. I'm going to get you a sundae. And Artie is swayed without even much effort. He's on board for the ice cream. But Jay's the one who says, you know, no, we shouldn't. We can't. Dad said we shouldn't. That's not that's not going to be right. And then that, that same thing appears later on in the script, right, Jackson? Yeah, yeah. He, he like, uh, ends up trying to go to work to to try to support their dad. <laughs> um, he, he At first, he tries to work for Uncle Louie. I'm sure we'll get to that eventually. But then they kind of hatch a plot to try to get rich quick by trying to discover their grandma's hidden money. And so he and <laughs> Jay and Artie, spearheaded by Jay, like go and try to search for a safe or money or something like that to try to find it. And there's, that's just two, I think, of really three of his tactics. He tries repeatedly throughout the play, eventually trying to like go off and become a mob boss or something with Louie to try to make money on the side to be a support to his family. Now, this is interesting because uh, returning to where this conversation started, this line between drama and comedy, (laughs) gosh, that sure sounds like a comedy, doesn't it? (laughs) Two sons and grandma's got some money hidden in the candy store and they've got to go find it and then they fail. And so the older brother tries to become a mobster (laughs) to win money to support their dad. I mean, that that sounds like the recipe for a Neil Simon comedy if I ever heard one. (laughs) It sure does. Yep. And yet some... Somehow we hit this kind of uh, undercurrent, and I think that has to do with the siblings who are present, who uh, we'll get to in a minute. I do want to kind of ask you one question before we move on from the family dynamic of Jay, Artie, and Eddie, because I think another play... uh, would would lean into the tension of being abandoned by Eddie, of Jay and Artie being abandoned by Eddie and kind of this family drama. Um, I, 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 I'm, I'm intrigued what your thoughts are around why we don't get that in this play. Because at least in my reading of it, they seem to still be as healthy as, as a family unit can be under those situations in the, in the letters that they write back and forth. But why... You know, what does that do as uh, as what does that do for us who are receiving the story to not have that tension involved? I think you're right. It does not appear to me to be uh, an element of the story that the boys feel especially hurt by the abandonment of their father. Even in the wake of their mother's death, you know, you could imagine a story in which two boys are dumped off at grandma's house uh, while dad goes off to work and losing their mom, now losing their dad. They feel just hurt and left behind. And, you know, as, as an actor who would be playing one of those boys, you might imagine some of that in the psychology. But I agree, it doesn't really appear to be in the script. I think there's a couple reasons for that on the Neil Simon, why he might have done that level. And then a couple reasons why we don't really get it in the script. On the Neil Simon level, there's just so much else. I mean, right? He he writes a script where almost every other relationship with these boys gets strained and cracked in some way. And man, it'd be a lot to also have to do it with their father. Additionally, as you're writing a script like this, the prospect of one day being rescued by your dad who you love is kind of what these boys are chomping their teeth down and gritting through the experience to get through. 
Um, so so I, there's some understanding there of maybe why write a story where that doesn't exist. But why don't we get it in the story, Jackson? Because Eddie doesn't just disappear, right? It'd be one thing if the character just vanished off the face of the earth, but he's in the script. He is. He's repeatedly uh, through the uh, through a voiceover reading letters to the boys, and they're writing back and forth all the time. So, additionally, not only do we not uh, really get the the uh, feeling that the boys are feeling super traumatized by it, they're sad, but they're not traumatized by being abandoned. But additionally, we don't get the 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 kind of often uh, heard storyline of the dad enjoying the fact that his sons are at home. It seems like, or his sons are away as he's off selling stuff or abandoning them to live his own life. He has things to do. It seems like he is working himself nearly to death on the road from his letters to try to pay off this debt and get back to his boys. And over and over, the letters seem to corroborate that. And and you can you can argue that, you know, <laughs> perception or, or his point of view, if, if if you were with him, maybe he wouldn't feel that way. But when he comes back in the end, he comes back in the end to to be with his boys again, to restore his family. So there's, in in some ways, it, about halfway through the play, you kind of take a deep breath and go, okay, that's not the play we're watching. What are we watching? And you, you redirect on what are these boys experiencing while they're with this weird family that they're with. I love what you just said. There, There's a point in the script where you go, oh... This is not a play about two boys being left by their father who has to go and work on the road. The yeah. two boys are just, they're the Nick Carraway, you know? They're the narrators, <laughs> I guess. And not in yeah. the sense that they actually narrate, but like they're just the eyes with which we have a, a, a way to view a different story. In fact, they're almost unrelated to the story of the play. <laughs> I mean, right? Yeah. yeah. Like the story of the play is between Bella and Grandma. Mm-hmm. That's where the that's where the story is. The boys' story doesn't even have that much dramatic tension in it. Yeah, their dad has to go and work and pay it off, and and right away they're not sure if they're going to get to stay with grandma. But then we do, and occasionally it's a little bit tense of like, oh, what's going to happen to these boys? There's all these people around them, but they're never in any real danger. Yeah. <laughs> right? And they're, they're like, at one point, Jay, you're right, as we mentioned, feels like, oh, I should get a job to help pay my dad off. But that doesn't really go anywhere either. And it, and it, the, the letters never say, like, the dad's, you know, really needs their help. He seems to right. get it done, right? And he comes back about the time he predicted he was going to. Their story is about as smooth sailing as it could be for the <laughs> terrible situation Neil Simon put them in at the beginning of the show. <laughs> right. After yeah. the first scene, things go pretty much okay for the boys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a couple like trip ups for them. They there's they get angry at grandma. Grandma tries to like teach them lessons. But I agree that most of the script or, or the tension of the script rotates around the two sibling, other siblings. Well, we meet four siblings in total, but the two that we spend the most time with are Bella and Louie. Yeah, and and that to me seems to end up where the real story lies, where the real peek behind the curtains is. And the boys are 
just uh, a kind of odd way to <laughs> yeah. introduce us to the story, which is about these two adult siblings, one who lives there permanently. Bella lives with grandma as the place that she lives. And then Louis, who is, uh, he's staying with grandma for a short amount of time. He claims because his apartment is getting painted. Everybody knows that's not true. He's like <laughs> hiding from the mob. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he comes in with this uh, auspicious uh, black handbag that he uh, spends various scenes telling people not to open or to open threateningly, and uh, and yeah, he's 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 uh, and around the same time they start noticing people are casing the candy store that they live in. By the way, they live. I don't know if we specifically said it, but Grandma runs a candy store. <laughs> uh, look, I don't know what to do with that. Right. What? <laughs> I think I think kind of what it does. <laughs> what it does is it creates a situation that it, it, uh, that feels like every kid would love, right? Like we're gonna go stay with Grandma, who runs a candy store, and yet <laughs> it is so sub what that sub the par of what that would be like. Why does that woman run a candy <laughs> store? <laughs> <laughs> I just I mean there's just no explanation done at all right. about why these German immigrants fleeing violence in Germany come to America and move to Yonkers to start a candy store. <laughs> we just don't know. And right. it, nobody even ever really tries to examine it. It's just a fact of the world of the play. And mm-hmm. we just live in it. And it's fine. You don't really question it until after the play, you start talking with your buddy on Zoom. And you go, <laughs> why does he run a candy store? There's ice cream involved somehow, too. <laughs> yeah, they have. I don't know. It, that's a very weird element. But yes, yep. <laughs> they live above a candy store, which is run by the family. Grandma uh, is in charge, and she owns it. But all the folks that are living with her at different times work for her in the candy store, including the two young boys. Mm-hmm. Yep. So 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 into that mess. So we already have the established Bella lives with them, right? Um and 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 that's part of the reason that they get to stay there at all, because grandma's not on board with the boys staying. At the end of scene one, she says, No, you can't. And uh, everyone starts to leave, but Bella kind of stubbornly and and maybe childlikely just bullies her way into letting the boys stay. Because she says that if they don't stay, she will leave for real this time. Well, yeah, it's it's masterful on her part. It is genius. It's an incredibly adult, subtle, um, pointed manipulation. At least it could be. Right. And right. so let's talk about Bella and about why you said one thing and then I said the other. And it yeah. could be either one of those things. Yeah, we're, u- we're using some of these terms as the characters do in the play. Uh, childlike. Uh, what was the term you used again? It was uh, something, something, something to do with childlike. But she sure. has. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but she she kind of has this. um you know, short attention span, childish, sometimes stubborn, sometimes um, kind of ecstatic or easy to distract personality throughout the play. Here's an example, right, from scene one. The boys are talking about her. They make some jokes about how 
she's not all there. Again, it's just the language of the characters. In fact, at one point they say her mind is closed for repairs or something. And then they notice her walking by outside the window and they say, oh, she must be lost again. And so they wave her down and say, no, we're up here, Aunt Bella, come in this door. And and Aunt Bella does. And then Aunt Bella has to knock at the apartment door. And they say, oh, well, she she forgot how to use the door. So they go and let her in. And she says, I lost my key. And they say, well, how did you get in downstairs? Well, I used my spare key. (laughs) <laughs> so like that that's a comp i mean that's a joke right that's a setup mm-hmm. and a payoff of a joke how did you get in or uh, how do, why why can't you use the door i lost my key how'd you get in downstairs i used my spare key set up payoff of a joke that's classic comic writing that's something you'd find in every neil simon script everywhere but that there's this deeper reference with why bella is the way that she is she is she has a mental disability right Mm-hmm. Yeah, brought on by a kind of aggressive parenting style. Each of the children have these uh, these th- things about them that have uh, that are consequences of the type of parenting that Grandma enforced <laughs> on them. Um, so so yeah, she she uh, whether at the whether she uses that uh, that kind of uh, that that childish nature at the end to willfully uh, ignore Grandma not wanting the boys or not. She gets the boys. She she is the reason the boys stay in the house with them at the beginning of the play. Right, and that moment is so important. Not only does it set up the fact that the boys are staying, which again is what you think this script is about <laughs> right. when you first start reading it. It doesn't end up really being about that much at all. But mm-hmm. you think it's about the boys are staying, so it's a crucially important point to the plot. But it's also um, it's a it, it, it it's a it's so important to the understanding of the real plot, the real story between Bella and Grandma, because whether Bella is simply insisting that she gets her way and is using whatever tools she can frantically grasp at and and comprehend enough to wield in in a way and she just gets lucky right whether she just gets lucky and finds the threat that works against grandma or whether she has shrewdly carefully manipulated the power so that she can hold it and use it on one issue one time and she uses it here that's a crucial difference in the character Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. What she what she negotiates in that moment is the presence of allies, and 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 friends to be around her, so that she can begin building a uh, overt resistance to Grandma's tyrannical reign over her. <laughs> <laughs> that's, I mean, a, that's right, right? I mean, that, ultimately, what she gains is people to be in the apartment with her, allies, like you say. In that scene one, she comes out of the grandma's bedroom crying into Eddie, the father's arms, and says, you know, I, she's so mean. I'm alone all the time. I hate it here. She's so cruel. And Eddie says, well, the boys are going to stay if grandma agrees and provides her a world in which she's not alone with the cruelty of grandma all day, every day. And then she uses either by accident or by shrewd manipulation power to win that moment at the end of scene one. And which one it is, I think matters a lot because if, if it's, if it's truly shrewd manipulation, 
If Bella has known that she has this power to threaten to leave Grandma to get what she wants, and she's been holding on to it until she finally has something important enough to play all of her cards, then Grandma has sincerely misunderstood who Bella is and what their relationship is, and that might lend itself to understand how the play really ends between the two of them. Grandma might not really be aware of how, how with it Bella really is. I, th- I I think that's absolutely true. I think we we discover throughout the play that Grandma is not aware of a lot of what Bella is up to, <laughs> and a, and a lot of of the consequences of what she's done to Bella. The consequences have done, and in addition to that as well, because we find out a lot about her story by the end of the play, and we find out a lot of things that Grandma didn't didn't know or chose not to know about her. Yeah, and, and and the same thing is kind of true of Louis as the story goes on. Um, Louis is the other brother, and he comes in, I don't know, a third of the way through the play or so, and he is ostensibly the, the sibling that is okay, right? Eddie has <laughs> suffered some emotional abuse at the hands of Grandma that has made him kind of the way that he is, and uh, Bella, we know, ha- has a a severe mental disability of some sort uh, to, to whatever degree or diagnosis that would be in our time, unsure. Gertrude has a pretty severe anxiety-induced speech impediment that we, we learn about at the very beginning of the play and we, we actually see in person later on in the play. But at face value, Louis is okay. <laughs> sure, except for the fact that he is <laughs> embedded in the mafia. <laughs> and <laughs> well, but that's not like a, that's not a problem. <laughs> he's just a criminal. Yeah, he's just a criminal. <laughs> yeah, but I, I I agree with you that he is at least able to function on on a um, on a on a somewhat. Ah, normal's the wrong word, but uh, on a high level. Uh, and he's also... Uh, right, you today get... we would say he seems pretty neurotypical. Yes, there you go. Um, he's also He also seems to be the one who at least reportedly, mostly from his own reporting, uh, was able to stand up to grandma the most. Um, he his, his response to her parenting style was, okay, I'll take it and I'll ask you for another. Um, and, and he, he tells that story in relation to the soup that we've already mentioned. Artie has to eat this soup and, and, and Louie comes out and he's like, oh yeah, I remember that soup. When she gave it to me, I, I drink like six bowls of it just to prove that I could take it. And, and that's his advice for dealing with grandma's, uh, discipline and just relation in general, kind of the never show her that you're weak approach. So these are the two siblings which we spend the time with. Eddie's there and gone only exists in letters and then two brief scenes. Gertrude's only there for two short scenes, mostly as an intruder to the apartment and then is gone again. These two siblings, Bella and Louie, are who uh, create the two poles of the experience of Grandma. And so we have three generations of people that live in this apartment at any one time. Grandma, Eddie, and, I'm sorry, uh, Louie and Bella, and then Jay and Artie. And Jay and Artie watch these two, Louie and Bella, as a, uh, almost like a warning of what could happen to them if they stay with Grandma too long, <laughs> one way or the other. And, of course, then Grandma is the, I don't know, the, the absolute authority of the apartment. 
Right, right. And what that kind of does is allows uh, the boys to play different people within this world um, and and act on various levels of adulthood throughout this world. Um, and, and it allows us to go on that journey with them. There are moments when, you know, you have to ask the question where oftentimes uh, Jay, uh, I'm, I'm thinking of when uh, Bella sits everyone down to tell them some pretty important news uh, that she has started uh, have, uh, forming a relationship with this guy who's always at the movie theater where she goes. And she's sitting around all the family except for Eddie is there. You've got Gert, Louie, Grandma, Jay, and Artie all in the room. And she's having a really hard time starting things. The anxiety of speaking up about this is really getting to her. And Jay steps up and like asks really pointed questions about then <laughs> just tries to get her started and move through it. Notably because Bella has revealed to Jay and Artie the secret ahead of time. They those two are the only two that know going into this conversation what it is that Bella is trying to tell the family, which is I've met this guy at the movie theater. We're getting married. Oh, also grandma, could you give me $5,000 to start a restaurant (laughs) with this guy that I'm in love with that I've known for 10 days? Yep. (laughs) Which it never even gets to that point. Grandma like storms out before she can get to the ask for the money. But still like the, uh, again, these, these boys are kind of like, like little little impetus pieces for the play. They like jump in and we celebrate the moments where they do something, but the play itself operates on another level than them, on a on a different plot line than them in some ways. Yeah, they they start things going. They cause things to happen in the course of the apartment. As you mentioned, the great scene where Jay is the one who asks, he has to be the driver of the beginning of Bella's conversation. But then, of course, who takes over? Louie comes in and he becomes the interrogator. And the distinction between he and Jay in how their questioning happens, Jay, you know, it's almost like a witness on a stand in court, right? Jay, the defense attorney, just tell your story. Leading questions about how 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 many how how much can I get you to say that's about what you want to say and what I want you to say and then Louis comes in as the prosecutor question after question who is this guy why does he want this money how do you know him how do you know he's not tricking you you're a child da ba da ba da ba da ba da mm-hmm which you you begin to start seeing what the full family dynamic is like like what what uh what uh, grandma has made this family become in a lot of ways. Now, Louie is not completely wrong, right? Like, it is It is a fast process for her to fall in love with this guy. And there are problems. He can't uh, read for one thing. And uh, he's he, he's wanting to form this business, but he needs... He, he wants Bella to partner with him and do a lot of the actual business running side of things. And, uh, yeah, and, and, and the, this understanding of who this uh, you know, gentleman caller is, to borrow from Tennessee <laughs> Williams, um, it, it, that, that's a distinction of context a little bit. Because when Bella tells the two boys, when it's just those three characters on stage about this guy she's meeting, he has a, a reading disability at the very least, a learning, a developmental learning disability. And he's also had to live at this place just called The Home, which I don't know, we imagine is a home for folks who have developmental disabilities of some sort where they can live 
taken care of by people. And grandma is always threatening to send Bella to the home. Obviously, Bella has something going on there. Um, and so when she tells the two boys about this guy, there's a kind of kinship, a camaraderie, as she describes. You know, he's kind of like me. He's suffered the same kind of things I have. He understands the same kinds of things I do. We have a connection and so that it, it's almost sweet, the fact that these people found each other in a, you know, so similar. And then when Louis takes over his interrogation later in the play and he discovers these facts, they become ways in which the this gentleman is uh, going to take advantage of Bella, right? He can't read. He doesn't have any money. He's poor. He's obviously just looking for her for her money and for her to do all the work for him to run this restaurant because he can't do any of it himself. He looks at it as a, an abusive thing, you know, a way to take advantage of Bella. And that's those two poles, isn't it, right? I mean, mm-hmm. Bella looks at everything as a way to make a connection, as these similar things that we can we can make into a shared life. What does she say about the two boys' ages at the beginning of the play, Jackson, when she, she asks them, you know, you're, you're 13 and a half and you're 15 and a half? Well, she like compares, she compares their ages to hers. She adds their two ages together and like tries to find camaraderie uh, with these two very young boys. <laughs> yeah, and, like <laughs> we're, we're the same age because your two ages added together is kind of similar to my age. Yep, it you know, comes she, close. She looks for this connection, for this way not to be alone. And then Louis, of course, on the other side, sees everything as a way somebody might be making a play, taking advantage, looking for the inside jab. Yep. And, and, and both of those perspectives have kind of developed as a way to uh, cope with the fact that no matter what they bring to grandma, she devalues all of it. Every time they bring something to grandma, any, anytime any character brings something to grandma, she doesn't want it. Or she doesn't, she doesn't want to be perceived as wanting it, I think. Um, e- even love from some of these characters. When people come and like try to connect with her, she says, well, that's useless at this point because you've already denied me this in, the pre- in previous times. When uh, Eddie uh, ends up trying to like give money to her, she says, I can't take any of your money because I know how you got it and it's worthless to me because of how you got it. Yeah, she has this weird moral high ground with Louie that she doesn't seem to have with some of the other characters, or at least that that comes sort of as a surprise to me that she's really, really morally against the way that Louie makes money. But you're right that, that she doesn't want to receive these things for anything, and that actually has played off on Eddie, the boy's father as well. He has a similar discussion about not wanting to owe people things or take anything. This is what Bella says about Grandma. This is in the climax. Uh, this is that confrontation in the circle of chairs with Gertrude there. Uh, she says, she's talking about the children that she's going to have someday, that Bella is going to have, and she's never ever going to make them spend their lives rubbing my back and my legs because you never had anyone around who loved you enough to want to touch you because you made it so clear you never wanted to be touched with love. Yeah, like that... That sums it up pretty much. And and that's that's an attack from Bella, but it is not in in my memory of that scene, it's not one that's countered very deftly by grandma. She doesn't even really try. Um I think I think it's accepted by these characters that she has just become this kind of uh walled off person in terms of her uh ability to to feel 
love and, and for for her children. Well, she's interested in survival, right? We've talked yeah. about this that for her parenting is making sure your children survive. And she's even failed that. She says, you know, one of my I think she even calls it a sin was to outlive her two of her children. Yeah. Yeah, so so where does that does does that uh, culminate in anything towards the end of the play? Does is there any journey that we go on with Grandma, or is is the journey elsewhere in this play? Does does she move out of that at all by the end, or or not? Do you think? Man, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, the the difference between Grandma and the other characters, or um, maybe all the characters but Louie. We might have that discussion later, or we may not have time. I know we're coming near the end here. But the main difference between Grandma and the other characters, I think, is the view of survival versus the view of thriving, right? It's this Grandma grew up in this hard, hard world, and then she became a parent, and she had a hard, hard time keeping her children alive by moving them to America. And then she lost some, and she's failed, and she— she lives in a world in which survival is her only goal and the only goal of herself as a parent. And the people around her look at her and say, survival's not an issue anymore. We're solidly middle class. We own a candy store for cripes sake. We're not surviving. We're going to survive. It'll be all right. Even when our family members like Eddie's wife, the boy's mother, die of cancer, we're going to go on and get, you know, work together as a family. The issue is, can we thrive while we do that? Can we do things that we enjoy? Can we have meaningful connections with other people? Can we pursue goals that we want to pursue? in our lives. And grandma says none of that matters. Everybody else says, of course it does. It's part of who we are and what our life is. So what is the end of the play, Jackson? How does survival versus thriving come to? I mean, to to push your own question back on yourself, (laughs) what what journey does grandma go on? Yeah, well, uh, (laughs) grandma kind of gets... overruled by her family by the end of the play in in what is i think a prog- uh, like a progress sort of way she allows herself to be overruled i think is as close to kind of development as it as it comes right like <laughs> um eddie returns with uh enough money well first of all bella returns bella runs away after the terrible confrontation and and no one hears from her for a while it turns out she's staying with gert um but she comes back and uh, one by one, people come back to Grandma. Um, she, Bella comes back and says, turns out the guy didn't actually want to go through the hard work of having a relationship. He didn't actually want kids. It was a bad choice. And now I'm back. And here's the rules now, basically, is <laughs> what Bella does. Bella asserts some control over their relationship. Eddie comes back, and he's going to take the boys away. And he, as well, asserts some control over the relationship by saying... I'm going to start coming more often here and you're going to see the boys more often and we're going to do this family thing. And and eventually this uh, this uh, concentrated effort from those two siblings and the boys who kind of get the melting of the ice cold heart award um, by the end of the play 
pushes grandma towards acceptance of this, this thriving that you're talking about, this changing of goals, almost, almost generational changing of goals and being okay with that in her life. Right. Yeah. And, and two kind of crucial things about the, both of those interactions. The first about Bella and grandma again, second scene from the end of the play, Bella comes back after having run away. She says, as you said, the guy didn't want to do it anyway. Uh, so I'm back. Here are the new rules. If you wanted any more proof, that the boys are not the protagonists. They are not even in the room <laughs> for the right. climactic conversation. Yeah. For one of the few times through the whole script, they leave. And <laughs> Bella and Grandma are alone for the crucial confrontation of the play. That is such a good point. And, and, and there's not much more for me to say about it other than I felt that when they left the room. You feel it in the play. It's like... Oh, dang it. We really are not watching a play about these boys. I thought I kind of... <laughs> there they kinda, go. They're I not kinda... even going to have anything to do with this. Because <laughs> there's a bunch of scenes with just them and Louie, and you're kind of on this ride with them and Louie. And, and look, then... I, I, am, I am who I am, and I am not worthy to kiss Neil Simon's feet. <laughs> but... It's a little weird that they leave at that moment. They have, right. you know, if he if he feels the need to use them as the window within which we watch this other story, it's weird that they leave and we still get <laughs> to see this other story play out between Vela and Grandma. But I digress. To the other point here, it, 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 Eddie has returned for the boys. Final scene of the play. The boys are saying goodbye, and there's a very physical gesture that both Eddie and the boys due to grandma, which sort of differentiates this world of thriving versus surviving. Because grandma says, we already said goodbye. Oh, she speaks with a heavy German accent, by the way. We yeah. already said goodbye. <laughs> we haven't really and talked about two, that. Two time. goodbyes is too much. And that was a bad German accent, but that's what she says. And, and yet, that's the survival view, right? We did it. It's done. We shook hands. You know, this is it's over. We, we, we don't need anything in excess. And yet... The boys say goodbye again, and they do it in in a gesture that, it, if more than any other gesture, signifies thriving to me. And perhaps <laughs> this is just me, but they kiss her. Mm -hmm. You know, they kiss their grandma on the cheek. If that's not thriving v surviving, I don't know what is. Right. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That that last scene is is is. I'm trying to think, and, and this would maybe be a good uh, choice to, to consider as a production team and as a director and as actors, but how many times people touch grandma in this play, that might be the only called for touch in this, in this play. And if it is, I mean, I'm making a knee jerk, <laughs> knee jerk decision here that it, that it is, it's really cool. It's a perfect culmination of this untouchable kind of cold well, woman. Even more than that. Think about how grandma interacts with the physical world around her. I don't think she does much touching with her hands. Yeah. What does she have with her at all times? She's got that cane. The cane. As she interacts with the physical world around her, there is literally a barrier between her and everything else. She doesn't like <laughs> grab things or tap people. She uses her cane to interact with the world. 
Yep. <laughs> and many people are afraid of that cane throughout. It's so a even entering cane. <laughs> yep. Entering her sphere is dangerous and and that at the end uh gets uh, gets overcome by her family and, right. and I mean, the boys. The metaphor, the image, right? They go inside the barrier. Right. Right? They <laughs> they they enter into her sphere and and Kiss her on the cheek. It's beautiful. And, and actually, as I'm saying this, I think Artie's the only one that does it. Eddie does. Um, but but again, the, the real significant yeah. moment is the son, especially the younger son, Artie, as he kind of breaks that world and becomes the one to kiss grandma on the cheek. But then the boys leave, Eddie leaves, and there's another confrontation showdown of thrive versus survive. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and it's in Bella. She uh she's left still. She's going to be there. And then she so so that's the two of them left in the room and uh and she's kind of launches into here's how things are going to be now basically. She lets her know I found a friend and uh I w- I'd like to have her over. I'm going to have her over. When can we have her over? And <laughs> and there's this I forget what the exact line is, but she kind of the grandma just has this like okay <laughs> Kind no, of. The, uh, Bella is, <laughs> man, Bella's line there is so funny too because she, she's talking about having these friends over and she says like, you don't need to decide right away. And then there's like this brief pause and she goes, <laughs> Thursday would be good. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Again, yep. that's classic Neil Simon comedic writing, right? Set up and payoff, just like the key <laughs> bit. It's that same kind of bit. Set up, you don't have to do it for a while. Set up the expectation. Pay off the joke, but we're gonna do it Thursday. Break gonna the expectation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so so you leave you leave the play with a very different feeling from Grandma and those around her than than the beginning, and maybe that's the journey we go on. Is that that just that little baby step for this woman? <laughs> well, and and the baby step too in, involves the environment. At, you know, at the beginning of the play, Grandma is describing to the boys that she likes things quiet. She only listens to the news and only listens to the news before six. You know, she the, the, her apartment is the way it is. And then the end of the play ends with Bella doing what? Bella puts on a, on some music. She puts on Bing Crosby. Music. <laughs> Man, talk about survival versus thriving, right? Yep. Music. Yep. Of all things. And that is the, the final image of the play. As the lights fade is the music, the two of them in the apartment. And that's about it. And it's funny. For all that we've said about it being a drama... <laughs> The play is funny, and I, you right. end the play weirdly kind of like a comedy ends. Not just happy ending, but like the issues have been resolved. The lives have been changed. Things are moving forward for the better. Mm-hmm. And all oh, isn't their interaction great at the end. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, definitely. It's it's uh despite the fact that this this play contains so much depth about um, anxiety and abuse and abandonment, all of those things still manage to be perfectly held with this, uh, this comedic, this tongue-in-cheek, this family-based uh, lightness that uh, allows us to laugh at it throughout. Yeah, and it's it may not be possible to write a script like this today because it deals so 
candidly and so humorously with issues that we take very seriously now, potentially more so than when the script came out. We're very attentive to the way that parents treat their children in our culture today for the better. We're very attentive to things like sexual abuse, and we talked none about the fact that one of Bella's crucial revelations is that she, as a result of what grandma did to them psychologically, Bella kind of suffered a, 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 some sort of consensual sexual abuse throughout her life. Yeah, she she kind of ascribes it to the lack of lack of touch again, lack of 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 loving interaction with her mother that she then like lets people into the restaurant late at night after grandma has gone to sleep and uh, all through her childhood did that. So so uh, that that's one of the crucial revelations partway through the play. Yeah, and, and she reveals that adult men did it as well, which is what I'm saying about sexual abuse, that, you know, as a child, this was what this parenting drove her to do. And that kind of incredibly harsh, painful failure of a parent is dealt with differently in our culture today. Jackson, we recently talked about a script about the harsh failure of a parent in our culture today, and it was also <laughs> a black comedy, but a very mm -hmm. different kind of black comedy. Yeah, yeah, definitely. More to do with, you know, death and stuff. August Osage County is a good example of that. I think, I don't know, I, I, I think that there's still room for a play like this. I think it'll just be uh, so much more aware of itself. Um, well, I, I think and, and I think the tone would read differently if you wrote a script with the same characters and situations. I think the tone would come out more like August Osage County. For mm -hmm. all of its heavy psychological drama, Lost in Yonkers has the tone of a Neil Simon comedy. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I think I think the other one that it brings to mind is something like Next to Normal, which we uh, talked about. Way I think it was way back in season one. But that it, it has that walking the line of tragedy um, uh, while while laughing at each other. And 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 but I but what I do agree is that this this family hierarchical structure structure is uh, not as vernacular. Like uh, we 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 would not we would not uh, a character like Grandma is hard to hard to place into this because I agree we hold our parents to a much uh, more uh, uh, exposed standard of of uh, harsh of, of their harsh treatment of their children and and the the main character in August Osage County Violet is I think as much a grandma like character as we'd find in our kind of modern day and it, her authoritarianism is actively the 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 question of the play in some ways in August Osage County whether her control was ever really that you know that powerful or that meaningful in the lives of the family where that control led and to some degree that theme is the theme of Lost in Yonkers as well <laughs> yeah yep ramifications of parenting throughout <laughs> that that bleed through into the siblings and on down through the yeah, generations. Yeah, you watch the siblings suffer, you know, very specific psychological trauma that has manifested itself in their adult lives. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> Absolutely. I think I I think I think you're right. That, that 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 through line is interesting. It'll be interesting to see, you know, other plays that come out with this same because this is a I mean 
reflecting on parents and their parenting on you is a classic thing for playwrights to do. <laughs> so I think it this will continue in some way, shape, or form. It'll be interesting to see what archetypes get brought up as a result of it. Yeah, and, and the, the conflicts between generations, right? I mean, this mm -hmm. play is a generational conflict play. And in right. some ways, August Osage County is too. And, and I, I'm with you. I think as we move into a new generation of playwrights growing up and creating their scripts that are going to become the new vernacular, the new no script conversations, <laughs> it'll be interesting to see what, what's the conflicts between the new generations. Yeah, so... As you are reading plays, as you are looking them over, first of all, tell us about cool plays you, 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 you read or write, any of that, but also this play, if there is more that you would like to dig into with us, we are on all the social medias, not all the social medias, we're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, You're you can find us. on a very limited set of <laughs> the social medias. <laughs> by choice. <laughs> really narrow Sorry, spectrum. LinkedIn. We're yeah. not coming for you anytime soon. TikTok, you're right Snapchat. out. Snapchat. <laughs> <laughs> but find us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, at Podcast is the username. You can also find us on Gmail, noscriptpodcast at gmail.com. We would love to keep talking about this play with you. If you like this episode or some of our other episodes, one of the main things you can do to support our work is to tell people about it. Of course, we'd love your money, but we also want your conversation. <laughs> so please share this episode or other episodes on your social media. Tell your friends about it. You know people that like scripts. I know you do. And even if you don't think you do, just start asking around. Somebody does, probably. Right. I think, right? Anyway, you can find the <laughs> podcast on Podbean, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Spotify. Uh, the easiest way to get the new episodes as they come out is every Monday, a link to the new episode is posted on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Yeah, so find the links there, share them with your friends, and hang out with us on all those sites and also next week when we're coming at you with another play. So until then, I am Jackson Nikolai. I am Jacob Mann Christensen. Thanks for joining us on No Script, the podcast. We'll see ya.